bill, we began to know not only what every department was doing, but what each one of the many men working at the furnaces was doing, and thus to compare one with another. One of the chief sources of success in manufacturing is the introduction and strict maintenance of a perfect system of accounting so that responsibility for money or materials can be brought home to every man. Owners who, in the office, would not trust a clerk with five dollars without having a check upon him were supplying tons of materials daily to men in the mills without exacting an account of their stewardship by weighing what each returned in the finished form. The Siemens gas furnace had been used to some extent in Great Britain for heating steel and iron, but it was supposed to be too expensive. I well remember the criticisms made by older heads among the Pittsburgh manufacturers about the extravagant expenditure we were making upon these new-fangled furnaces. But in the heating of great masses of material, almost half the waste could sometimes be saved by using the new furnaces. The expenditure would have been justified, even if it had been doubled yet it was many years before we were followed in this new departure and in some of those years the margin of profit was so small that the most of it was made up from the savings derived from the adoption of the improved furnaces our strict system of accounting enabled us to detect the great waste possible in heating large masses of iron this improvement revealed to us a valuable man and a clerk william borntrager a distant relative of mr cloman who came from germany he surprised us one day by presenting a detailed statement showing results of a period which seemed incredible all the needed labor in preparing the statement he had performed at night unasked and unknown to us the form adapted was uniquely original needless to say william soon became superintendent of the works and later a partner and the poor german lad died a millionaire he well deserved his fortune it was in eighteen sixty two that the great oil wells of pennsylvania attracted attention my friend mr william coleman whose daughter became at a later date my sister-in-law was deeply interested in the discovery and nothing would do but that i should take a trip with him to the oil regions it was a most interesting excursion there had been a rush to the oil fields and the influx was so great that it was impossible for all to obtain shelter this however to the class of men who flocked thither was but a slight drawback a few hours sufficed to knock up a shanty and it was surprising in how short a time they were able to surround themselves with many of the comforts of life they were men above the average men who had saved considerable sums and were able to venture something in the search for fortune what surprised me was the good humor which prevailed everywhere it was a vast picnic full of amusing incidents everybody was in high glee fortunes were supposedly within reach. Everything was booming. On the tops of the derricks floated flags on which strange mottoes were displayed. I remember looking down toward the river and seeing two men working their treadles boring for oil upon the banks of the stream, and inscribed upon their flag was Hell or China. They were going down, no matter how far. The adaptability of the American was never better displayed than in this region order was soon evolved out of chaos when we visited the place not long after we were serenaded by a brass band the players of which were made up of the new inhabitants along the creek it would be safe to wager that a thousand americans in a new land would organize themselves establish schools churches newspapers and brass bands in short provide themselves with all the appliances of civilization and go ahead developing their country before an equal member of british would have discovered who among them was the highest in hereditary rank and had the best claims to leadership owing to his grandfather there is but one rule among americans the tools to those who can use them today oil creek is a town of many thousand inhabitants as is also titusville at the other end of the creek the district which began by furnishing a few barrels of oil every season gathered with blankets from the service of the creek by the seneca indians has now several towns and refineries with millions of dollars of capital in those early days all the arrangements were of the crudest character when the oil was obtained it was run into flat-bottomed boats which leaked badly water ran into the boats and the oil overflowed into the river the creek was dammed at various places and upon a stipulated day and hour the dams were opened and upon the flood the oil boats floated to the allegheny river and thence to pittsburgh 
In this way, not only the creek, but the Allegheny River became literally covered with oil. The loss involved in transportation to Pittsburgh was estimated at fully a third of the total quantity, and before the oil boats started, it is safe to say that another third was lost by leakage. The oil gathered by the Indians in the early days was bottled in Pittsburgh and sold at high prices as medicine, a dollar for a small vial. It had general reputation as a sure cure for rheumatic tendencies. As it became plentiful and cheap, its virtues vanished. What fools we mortals be! The most celebrated wells were upon the Story Farm. Upon these we obtained an option of purchase for $40,000. We bought them. Mr. Coleman, ever ready at suggestion, proposed to make a lake of oil by excavating a pool sufficient to hold a hundred thousand barrels, the waste to be made good every day by running streams of oil into it, and to hold it for the not far distant day when, as we then expected, the oil supply would cease. This was promptly acted upon, but after losing many thousands of barrels waiting for the expected day, which has not yet arrived, we abandoned the reserve. Coleman predicted that when the supply stopped, oil would bring $10 a barrel, and therefore we would have a million dollars worth in the lake. We did not think then of nature's storehouses below which still keeps on yielding many thousands of barrels per day without apparent exhaustion. This $40,000 investment proved for us the best of all so far. The revenues from it came at the most opportune time. The building of the new mill in Pittsburgh required not only all the capital we could gather, but the use of our credit, which I consider, looking backward, was remarkably good for young men. Having become interested in this oil venture, I made several excursions to the district, and also, in 1864, to an oil field in Ohio, where a great well had been struck which yielded a peculiar quality of oil well fitted for lubricating purposes. My journey thither with Mr. Coleman and Mr. David Ritchie was one of the strangest experiences I ever had. We left the railway line some hundreds of miles from Pittsburgh and plunged through a sparsely inhabited district to the waters of Duck Creek to see the monster well. We bought it before leaving. It was upon our return that adventures began. The weather had been fine and the roads quite passable during our journey thither, but rain had set in during our stay. We started back in our wagon, but before going far fell into difficulties. The road had become a mass of soft, tenacious mud, and our wagon labored fearfully. The rain fell in torrents, and it soon became evident that we were in for a night of it. Mr. Coleman lay at full length on one side of the wagon, and Mr. Ritchie on the other, and I, being then very thin, weighing not much more than a hundred pounds, was nicely sandwiched between the two portly gentlemen. Every now and then the wagon proceeded a few feet, heaving up and down in the most outrageous manner, and finally sticking fast. In this fashion we passed the night. There was in front a seat across the wagon, under which we got our heads, and in spite of our condition the night was spent in uproarious merriment. By the next night we succeeded in reaching a country town in the worst possible plight. We saw the little frame church of the town lighted, and heard the bell ringing. We had just reached our tavern when a committee appeared stating that they had been waiting for us, and that the congregation was assembled. It appears that a noted exhorter had been expected, who had no doubt been delayed as we had been. I was taken for the absentee minister, and asked how soon I would be ready to accompany them to the meeting-house. I was almost prepared with my companions to carry out the joke. We were in for fun. But I found I was too exhausted with fatigue to attempt it. I had never before come so near occupying a pulpit. My investments now began to require so much of my personal attention that I resolved to leave the service of the railway company and devote myself exclusively to my own affairs. I had been honored a short time before this decision by being called by President Thompson to Philadelphia. He desired to promote me to the office of Assistant General Superintendent with headquarters at Altoona under Mr. Lewis. I declined, telling him that I had decided to give up the railroad service altogether, that I was determined to make a fortune, and I saw no means of doing this honestly at any salary the railroad company could afford to give, and I would not do it by indirection. 
When I lay down at night, I was going to get a verdict of approval from the highest of all tribunals, the judge within. I repeated this in my parting letter to President Thompson, who warmly congratulated me upon it in his letter of reply. I resigned my position March 28, 1865, and received from the men on the railway a gold watch. This and Mr. Thompson's letter I treasure among my most precious mementos. The following letter was written to the men on the division. Pennsylvania Railroad Company, Superintendent's Office, Pittsburgh Division, Pittsburgh, March 28, 1865. To the officers and employees of the Pittsburgh Division. Gentlemen, I cannot allow my connection with you to cease without some expression of the deep regret felt at parting. Twelve years of pleasant intercourse have served to inspire feelings of personal regard for those who have so faithfully labored with me in the service of the company. The coming change is painful only as I reflect that in consequence thereof I am not to be in the future, as in the past, intimately associated with you and with many others in the various departments, who have through business intercourse become my personal friends. I assure you, although the official relations hitherto existing between us must soon close, I can never fail to feel and evince the liveliest interest in the welfare of such as have been identified with the Pittsburgh Division in times past, and who are, I trust, for many years to come, to contribute to the success of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company and share in its justly deserved prosperity. Thanking you most sincerely for the uniform kindness shown toward me, for your zealous efforts made at all times to meet my wishes, and asking for my successor similar support at your hands, I bid you all farewell. Very respectfully, signed Andrew Carnegie. Thenceforth, I never worked for a salary. A man must necessarily occupy a narrow field who is at the beck and call of others. Even if he becomes president of a great corporation, he is hardly his own master, unless he holds control of the stock. The ablest presidents are hampered by boards of directors and shareholders who can know but little of the business. But I am glad to say that among my best friends today are those with whom I labored in the service of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. In the year 1867, Mr. Phipps, Mr. J. W. Vandevort, and myself revisited Europe, traveling extensively through England and Scotland, and made the tour of the continent. Vandy had become my closest companion. We had both been fired by reading Bayard Taylor's Views Afoot. It was in the days of the oil excitement, and shares were going up like rockets. One Sunday, lying in the grass, I said to Vandy, if you can make three thousand dollars would you spend it in a tour through europe with me would a duck swim or an irishman eat potatoes was his reply the sum was soon made in oil stock by the investment of a few hundred dollars which vandy had saved this was the beginning of our excursion we asked my partner harry phipps who was by this time quite a capitalist to join the party we visited most of the capitals of Europe, and in all the enthusiasm of youth climbed every spire, slept on mountain tops, and carried our luggage and knapsacks upon our backs. We ended our journey upon Vesuvius, where we resolved some day to go around the world. This visit to Europe proved most instructive. Up to this time I had known nothing of painting or sculpture, but it was not long before I could classify the works of the great painters. One may not at the time justly appreciate the advantage he is receiving from examining the great masterpieces, but upon his return to America he will find himself unconsciously rejecting what before seemed truly beautiful and judging productions which come before him by a new standard. That which is truly great has so impressed itself upon him that what is false or pretentious proves no longer attractive. My visit to Europe also gave me my first great treat in music. The Handel anniversary was then being celebrated at the Crystal Palace in London, and I had never up to that time, nor have I often since, felt the power and majesty of music in such high degree. What I heard at the Crystal Palace, and what I subsequently heard on the continent, in the cathedrals, and at the opera, certainly enlarged my appreciation of music. At Rome, the Pope's choir and the celebrations in the churches at Christmas and Easter furnished, as it were, a grand climax to the whole. 
These visits to Europe were also of great service in a commercial sense. One has to get out of the swirl of the great republic to form a just estimate of the velocity with which it spins. I felt that a manufacturing concern like ours could scarcely develop fast enough for the wants of the American people, but abroad nothing seemed to be going forward. If we expected a few of the capitals of Europe, everything on the continent seemed to be almost at a standstill, while the Republic represented throughout its entire extent such a scene as there must have been at the Tower of Babel, as pictured in the storybooks, hundreds rushing to and fro, each more active than his neighbor, and all engaged in constructing the mighty edifice. It was Cousin Dodd, Mr. George Lauder, to whom we were indebted for a new development in our mill operations the first of its kind in america he it was who took our mr coleman to wigan in england and explained the process of washing and coking the dross from coal mines mr coleman had constantly been telling us how grand it would be to utilize what was then being thrown away at our mines and was indeed an expense to dispose of our cousin dodd was a mechanical engineer educated under Lord Kelvin at Glasgow University, and as he corroborated all that, Mr. Coleman stated, in December 1871, I undertook to advance the capital to build works along the line of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Contracts for ten years were made with the leading coal companies for their dross, and with the railway companies for transportation, and Mr. Lauder, who came to Pittsburgh and superintended the whole operation for years, began the construction of the first coal-washing machinery in America. He made a success of it. He never failed to do that in any mining or mechanical operation he undertook, and he soon cleared the cost of the works. No wonder that, at a later date, my partners desired to embrace the coke works in our general firm, and thus capture not only these, but Lauder also. Dodd had won his spurs. The ovens were extended from time to time until we had five hundred of them, washing nearly fifteen hundred tons of coal daily. I confess I never passed these coal ovens at Larimer Station without feeling that if he who makes two blades of grass grow where one grew before is a public benefactor and lays the race under obligation. Those who produce superior coke from material that has been for all previous years thrown over the bank as worthless have great cause for self-congratulation. It is fine to make something out of nothing. It is also something to be the first firm to do this upon our continent. We had another valuable partner in a second cousin of mine, a son of Cousin Morrison of Dunfermline. Walking through the shops one day, the superintendent asked me if I knew I had a relative there who was proving an exceptional mechanic. I replied in the negative, and asked that I might speak with him on our way around. We met. I asked his name. Morrison, was the reply, son of Robert, my cousin Bob. Well, how did you come here? I thought we could better ourselves, he said. Who have you with you? My wife, was the reply. Why didn't you come first to see your relative, who might have been able to introduce you here? Well, I didn't feel I needed help, if I only got a chance. There spoke the true Morrison taught to depend on himself, and independent as Lucifer. Not long afterwards I heard of his promotion to the superintendency of our newly acquired works at Duquesne, and from that position he steadily marched upward. He is today a blooming, but still sensible, millionaire. We are all proud of Tom Morrison. A note received from him yesterday invites Mrs. Carnegie and myself to be his guests during our coming visit of a few days at the annual celebration of the Carnegie Institute. I was always advising that our ironworks should be extended and new developments made in connection with the manufacture of iron and steel, which I saw was only in its infancy. All apprehension of its future development was dispelled by the action of America with regard to the tariff upon foreign imports. It was clear to my mind that the Civil War had resulted in a fixed determination upon the part of the American people to build a nation within itself, independent of Europe and all things essential to its safety. America had been obliged to import all her steel of every form, and most of the iron needed, Britain being the chief seller. The people demanded a home supply, and Congress granted the manufacturers a tariff of 28% ad valorem on steel rails.
the tariff then being equal to about $28 per ton. Rails were selling at about $100 per ton and other rates in proportion. Protection has played a great part in the development of manufacturing in the United States. Previous to the Civil War, it was a party question, the South standing for free trade and regarding a tariff as favorable only to the North. The sympathy shown by the British government for the Confederacy, culminating in the escape of the Alabama and other privateers to prey upon American commerce, aroused hostility against that government, notwithstanding the majority of her common people favored the United States. The tariff became no longer a party question, but a national policy, approved by both parties. It had become a patriotic duty to develop vital resources. No less than 90 Northern Democrats in Congress, including the Speaker of the House, agreed upon that point. Capital no longer hesitated to embark in manufacturing, confident as it was that the nation would protect it as long as necessary. Years after the war, demands for a reduction of the tariff arose, and it was my lot to be drawn into the controversy. It was often charged that bribery of congressmen by manufacturers was common, so far as I know, there was no foundation for this. Certainly, the manufacturers never raised any sums beyond those needed to maintain the Iron and Steel Association, a matter of a few thousand dollars per year. They did, however, subscribe freely to a campaign when the issue was protection versus free trade. The duties upon steel were successfully reduced, with my cordial support, until the $28 duty on rails became only one-fourth or $7 per ton. Today, 1911, the duty is only about one-half of that, and even that should go into next revision. The effort of President Cleveland to pass a more drastic new tariff was interesting. It cut too deep in many places, and its passage would have injured more than one manufacturer. I was called to Washington and tried to modify and, as I believe, improve the Wilson Bill. Senator Gorman, Democratic leader of the Senate, Governor Flower of New York, and a number of the ablest Democrats were as sound protectionists in moderation as I was. Several of these were disposed to oppose the Wilson Bill as being unnecessarily severe and certain to cripple some of our domestic industries. Senator Gorman said to me he wished as little as I did to injure any home producer, and he thought his colleagues had confidence in and would be guided by me as to iron and steel rates, provided that large reductions were made and that the Republican senators would stand unitedly for a bill of that character. I remember his words. I can afford to fight the President and beat him, but I can't afford to fight him and be beaten. Governor Flowers shared these views. There was little trouble in getting our party to agree to the large reductions I proposed. The Wilson-Gorman tariff bill was adopted. Meeting Senator Gorman later, he explained that he had to give way on cotton ties to secure several Southern senators. Cotton ties had to be free, so tariff legislation goes. I was not sufficiently prominent in manufacturing to take part in getting the tariff established immediately after the war, so it happened that my part has always been to favor reduction of duties, opposing extremes, the unreasonable protectionists who consider the higher the duties, the better, and declaim against any reduction, and the other extremists who denounce all duties and would adopt unrestrained free trade. We could now, 1907, abolish all duties upon steel and iron without injury, essential as these duties were at the beginning. Europe has not much surplus production, so that should prices rise exorbitantly here, only a small amount could be drawn from there, and this would instantly raise prices in Europe, so that our home manufacturers could not be seriously affected. Free trade would only tend to prevent exorbitant prices here for a time when the demand was excessive. Home iron and steel manufacturers have nothing to fear from free trade. I recently, 1910, stated this in evidence before the Tariff Commission at Washington. End of Chapter 10 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 11 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 11. New York as Headquarters. Our business continued to expand and required frequent visits on my part to the East, especially to New York, which is as London to Britain, the headquarters of all really important enterprises in America. No large concern could very well get on without being represented there. My brother and Mr. Phipps had full grasp of the business at Pittsburgh. My field appeared to be to direct the general policy of the companies and negotiate the important contracts. My brother had been so fortunate as to marry Miss Lucy Coleman, daughter of one of our most valued partners and friends. Our family residence at Homewood was given over to him, and I was once more compelled to break old associations and leave Pittsburgh in 1867 to take up my residence in New York. The change was hard enough for me, but much harder for my mother, but she was still in the prime of life, and we would be happy anywhere so long as we were together. Still, she did feel the leaving of our home very much. We were perfect strangers in New York, and at first took up our quarters in the St. Nicholas Hotel, then in its glory. I opened an office in Broad Street. For some time, the Pittsburgh friends who came to New York were our chief source of happiness, and the Pittsburgh papers seemed necessary to our existence. I made frequent visits there, and my mother often accompanied me, so that our connection with the old home was still maintained. But after a time, new friendships were formed, and new interests awakened, and New York began to be called home. When the proprietors of the St. Nicholas opened the Windsor Hotel uptown, we took up our residence there, and up to the year 1887, that was our New York home. Mr. Hawk, the proprietor, became one of our valued friends, and his nephew and namesake still remain so. Among the educative influences from which I derived great advantage in New York, none ranks higher than the 19th Century Club, organized by Mr. and Mrs. Cortland Palmer. The club met at their house once a month for the discussion of various topics, and soon attracted many able men and women. It was to Madame Botta I owed my election to membership. A remarkable woman, wife of Professor Botta, whose drawing-room became more of a salon than any in the city, if indeed it were not the only one resembling a salon at that time. I was honored by an invitation one day to dine at the Bottas, and there met for the first time several distinguished people, among them one who became my lifelong friend and wise counselor, Andrew D. White, then president of Cornell University, afterwards ambassador to Russia and Germany, and our chief delegate to the Hague Conference. Here in the 19th Century Club was an arena, indeed. Able men and women discussed the leading topics of the day in due form, addressing the audience one after another. The gathering soon became too large for a private room. The monthly meetings were then held in the American art galleries. I remember the first evening I took part as one of the speakers. The subject was The Aristocracy of the Dollar. Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson was the first speaker. This was my introduction to a New York audience. Thereafter, I spoke now and then. It was excellent training, for one had to read and study for each appearance. I had lived long enough in Pittsburgh to acquire the manufacturing as distinguished from the speculative spirit. My knowledge of affairs, derived from my position as telegraph operator, had enabled me to know the few Pittsburgh men or firms which then had dealings upon the New York Stock Exchange, and I watched their careers with deep interest. To me, their operations seemed simply a species of gambling. I did not then know that the credit of all these men or firms was seriously impaired by the knowledge, which it is almost impossible to conceal, that they were given to speculation. But the firms were then so few that I could have counted them on the fingers of one hand. The oil and stock exchanges in Pittsburgh had not as yet been founded, and brokers' offices with wires in connection with the stock exchanges of the East were unnecessary. Pittsburgh was emphatically a manufacturing town. I was surprised to find how very different was the state of affairs in New York. There were few even of the businessmen who had not their ventures in Wall Street, 
to a greater or less extent. I was besieged with inquiries from all quarters in regard to the various railway enterprises with which I was connected. Offers were made to me by persons who were willing to furnish capital for investment and allow me to manage it the supposition being that from the inside view which i was enabled to obtain i could invest for them successfully invitations were extended to me to join parties who intended quietly to buy up the control of certain properties in fact the whole speculative field was laid out before me in its most seductive guise all these allurements i declined the most notable offer of this kind i ever received was one morning in the windsor hotel soon after my removal to new york jay gould then in the height of his career approached me and said he had heard of me and he would purchase control of the pennsylvania railroad company and give me one half of all profits if i would agree to devote myself to its management I thanked him and said that, although Mr. Scott and I had parted company in business matters, I would never raise my hand against him. Subsequently, Mr. Scott told me he had heard I had been selected by New York interests to succeed him. I do not know how he had learned this, as I had never mentioned it. I was able to reassure him by saying that the only railroad company I would be president of would be one I owned. Strange what changes the whirligig of time brings in. It was my part one morning in 1900, some thirty years afterwards, to tell the son of Mr. Gold of his father's offer, and to say to him, Your father offered me control of the great Pennsylvania system. Now I offer his son in return the control of an international line from ocean to ocean. The son and I agreed upon the first step. That was the bringing of his Wabash line to Pittsburgh. This was successfully done under a contract given the Wabash of one-third of the traffic of our steel company. We were about to take up the eastern extension from Pittsburgh to the Atlantic when Mr. Morgan approached me in March 1901 through Mr. Schwab and asked if I really wished to retire from business. I answered in the affirmative, and that put an end to our railway operations. I have never bought or sold a share of stock speculatively in my life except one small lot of pennsylvania railroad shares that i bought early in life for investment and for which i did not pay at the time because bankers offered to carry it for me at a low rate i have adhered to the rule never to purchase what i did not pay for and never to sell what i did not own in those early days however i had several interests that were taken over in the course of business they included some stocks and securities that were quoted on the new york stock exchange and i found that when i opened my paper in the morning i was tempted to look first at the quotations of the stock market as i had determined to sell all my interests in every outside concern and concentrate my attention upon our manufacturing concerns in pittsburgh i further resolved not even to own any stock that was bought and sold upon any stock exchange with the exception of trifling amounts which came to me in various ways i have adhered strictly to this rule such a course should commend itself to every man in the manufacturing business and to all professional men for the manufacturing man especially the rule would seem all-important his mind must be kept calm and free if he is to decide wisely the problems which are continually coming before him nothing tells in the long run like good judgment and no sound judgment can remain with a man whose mind is disturbed by the mercurial changes of the stock exchange it places him under an influence akin to intoxication what is not he sees and what he sees is not he cannot judge of relative values or get the true perspective of things the molehill seems to him a mountain and the mountain a molehill and he jumps at conclusions which he should arrive at by reason his mind is upon the stock quotations and not upon the points that require calm thought speculation is a parasite feeding upon values creating none my first important enterprise after settling in new york was undertaking to build a bridge across the mississippi at keokuk mr thompson president of the pennsylvania railroad and i contracted for the whole structure foundation masonry and superstructure taking bonds and stocks in payment the undertaking was a splendid success in every respect except financially a panic threw the connecting railways into bankruptcy they were unable to pay the stipulated sums 
rival systems built a bridge across the Mississippi at Burlington and a railway down the west side of the Mississippi to Keokuk. The handsome profits which we saw in prospect were never realized. Mr. Thompson and myself, however, escaped loss, although there was little margin left. The superstructure for this bridge was built at our Keystone Works in Pittsburgh. The undertaking required me to visit Keokuk occasionally, and there I made the acquaintance of clever and delightful people, among them General and Mrs. Reed, and Mr. and Mrs. Lathan. Visiting Keokuk with some English friends at a later date, the impression they received of society in the far west, on what to them seemed the very outskirts of civilization, was surprising. A reception given to us one evening by General Reed brought together an assembly creditable to any town in Britain. More than one of the guests had distinguished himself during the war and had risen to prominence in the national councils. The reputation obtained in the building of the Keokuk Bridge led to my being applied to by those who were in charge of the scheme for bridging the Mississippi at St. Louis, to which I have already referred. This was connected with my first large financial transaction. One day, in 1869, the gentleman in charge of the enterprise, Mr. Macpherson, he was very Scotch, called at my New York office and said they were trying to raise capital to build the bridge. He wished to know if I could not enlist some of the Eastern Railroad companies in the scheme. After careful examination of the project, I made the contract for the construction of the bridge on behalf of the Keystone Bridge Works. I also obtained an option upon four million dollars of first mortgage bonds of the bridge company and set out for London in March 1869 to negotiate their sale. During the voyage I prepared a prospectus which I had printed upon my arrival in London, and, having upon my previous visit made the acquaintance of Junius S. Morgan, the great banker, I called upon him one morning and opened negotiations. I left with him a copy of the prospectus, and upon calling next day was delighted to find that Mr. Morgan viewed the matter favorably. I sold him part of the bonds with the option to take the remainder, but when his lawyers were called in for advice, a score of changes were required in the wording of the bonds. Mr. Morgan said to me that, as I was going to Scotland, I had better go now, I could write the parties in St. Louis and ascertain whether they would agree to the changes proposed. It would be time enough, he said, to close the matter upon my return three weeks hence. But I had no idea of allowing the fish to play so long, and informed him that I would have a telegram in the morning agreeing to all the changes. The Atlantic cable had been open for some time, but it is doubtful if it had yet carried so long a private cable as I sent that day. It was an easy matter to number the lines of the bond, and then going carefully over them, to state what changes, omissions, or additions were required in each line. I showed Mr. Morgan the message before sending it, and he said, Well, young man, if you succeed in that, you deserve a red mark. When I entered the office next morning, I found on the desk that had been appropriated to my use in Mr. Morgan's private office, the colored envelope which contained the answer. There it was. Board meeting last night. Changes all approved. Now, Mr. Morgan, I said, we can proceed, assuming that the bond is as your lawyers desire. The papers were soon closed. While I was in the office, Mr. Sampson, the financial editor of the Times, came in. I had an interview with him, well knowing that a few words from him would go far in lifting the price of the bonds on the exchange. American securities had recently been fiercely attacked, owing to the proceedings of Fisk and Gold in connection with the Erie Railway Company and their control of the judges in New York who seemed to do their bidding. I knew this would be handed out as an objection, and therefore I met it at once. I called Mr. Sampson's attention to the fact that the charter of the St. Louis Bridge Company was from the national government. In case of necessity, appeal lay directly to the Supreme Court of the United States a body vying with their own high tribunals. He said he would be delighted to give prominence to this commendable feature. I described the bridge as a toll gate on the Continental Highway, and this appeared to please him. It was all plain and easy sailing, and when he left the office, Mr. Morgan clapped me on the shoulder and said, Thank you, young man. You have raised the price of those bonds five percent this morning. 
"'All right, Mr. Morgan,' I replied. "'Now show me how I can raise them five percent more for you.' The issue was a great success, and the money for the St. Louis Bridge was obtained. I had a considerable margin of profit upon the negotiation. This was my first financial negotiation with the bankers of Europe. Mr. Pullman told me a few days later that Mr. Morgan, at a dinner party, had told the telegraphic incident and predicted, "'That young man will be heard from.' After closing with Mr. Morgan, I visited my native town, Dunfermline, and at that time made the town a gift of public baths. It is notable largely because it was the first considerable gift I had ever made. Long before that, I had, at my Uncle Lauder's suggestion, sent a subscription to the fund for the Wallace Monument on Stirling Heights, overlooking Bannockburn. It was not much, but I was then in the telegraph office, and it was considerable out of a revenue of thirty dollars per month, with family expenses staring us in the face. Mother did not grudge it. On the contrary, she was a very proud woman that her son's name was seen on the list of contributors, and her son felt he was really beginning to be something of a man. Years afterward, my mother and I visited Stirling, and there unveiled, in the Wallace Tower, a bust of Sir Walter Scott, which she had presented to the Monument Committee. We had then made great progress, at least financially, since the early subscription, but distribution had not yet begun. So far with me it had been the age of accumulation. While visiting the continent of Europe in 1867, and deeply interested in what I saw, it must not be thought that my mind was not upon affairs at home. Frequent letters kept me advised of business matters. The question of railway communication with the Pacific had been brought to the front by the Civil War, and Congress had passed an act to encourage the construction of a line. The first sod had just been cut at Omaha, and it was intended that the line should ultimately be pushed through to San Francisco. One day, while in Rome, it struck me that this might be done much sooner than was then anticipated. The nation, having made up its mind that its territory must be bound together, might be trusted to see that no time was lost in accomplishing it. I wrote my friend Mr. Scott, suggesting that we should obtain the contract to place sleeping cars upon the Great California Line. His reply contained these words, Well, young man, you do take time by the forelock. Nevertheless, upon my return to America, I pursued the idea. The sleeping car business, in which I was interested, had gone on increasing so rapidly that it was impossible to obtain cars enough to supply the demand. This very fact led to the forming of the present Pullman Company. The Central Transportation Company was simply unable to cover the territory with sufficient rapidity, and Mr. Pullman, beginning at the greatest of all railway centers in the world, Chicago, soon rivaled the parent concern. He had also seen that the Pacific Railroad would be the great sleeping car line of the world, and I found him working for what I had started after. He was, indeed, a lion in the path. Again, one may learn, from an incident which I had from Mr. Pullman himself, by what trifles important matters are sometimes determined. The president of the Union Pacific Railway was passing through Chicago. Mr. Pullman called upon him and was shown into his room. Lying upon the table was a telegram addressed to Mr. Scott, saying, "'Your proposition for sleeping cars is accepted.' Mr. Pullman read this involuntarily, and before he had time to refrain. He could not help seeing it where it lay. When President Durant entered the room, he explained this to him, and said, I trust you will not decide this matter until I have made a proposition to you. Mr. Durant promised to wait. A meeting of the board of directors of the Union Pacific Company was held soon after this in New York. Mr. Pullman and myself were in attendance, both striving to obtain the prize which neither he nor I undervalued. One evening we began to mount the broad staircase in the St. Nicholas Hotel at the same time. We had met before, but were not well acquainted. I said, however, as we walked up the stairs, "'Good evening, Mr. Pullman. Here we are together, and are we not making a nice couple of fools of ourselves?' He was not disposed to admit anything, and said, "'What do you mean?' I explained the situation to him. We were destroying by our rival propositions the very advantages we desired to obtain. "'Well,' he said, 
What do you propose to do about it? Unite, I said. Make a joint proposition to the Union Pacific. Your party and mine, and organize a company. What would you call it? he asked. The Pullman Palace Car Company, I replied. This suited him exactly, and it suited me equally well. Come into my room and talk it over, said the great sleeping car man. I did so, and the result was that we obtained the contract jointly. Our company was subsequently merged in the General Pullman Company, and we took stock in that company for our Pacific interests. Until compelled to sell my shares during the subsequent financial panic of 1873 to protect our iron and steel interests, I was, I believe, the largest shareholder in the Pullman Company. This man Pullman and his career are so thoroughly American that a few words about him will not be out of place. Mr. Pullman was at first a working carpenter, but when Chicago had to be elevated, he took a contract on his own account to move or elevate houses for a stipulated sum. Of course he was successful, and from this small beginning he became one of the principal and best-known contractors in that line. If a great hotel was to be raised ten feet without disturbing its hundreds of guests, or interfering in any way with its business, Mr. Pullman was the man. He was one of those rare characters who can see the drift of things, and was always to be found, so to speak, swimming in the main current where movement was the fastest. He soon saw, as I did, that the sleeping car was a positive necessity upon the American continent. He began to construct a few cars at Chicago, and to obtain contracts upon the lines centering there. The Eastern concern was in no condition to cope with that of an extraordinary man like Mr. Pullman. I soon recognized this, and although the original patents were with the Eastern Company and Mr. Woodruff himself, the original patentee was a large shareholder, and although we might have obtained damages for infringement of patent after some years of litigation, yet the time lost before this could be done would have been sufficient to make Pullman's the great company of the country. I therefore earnestly advocated that we should unite with Mr. Pullman, as I had united with him before in the Union Pacific contract. As the personal relations between Mr. Pullman and some members of the Eastern Company were unsatisfactory, it was deemed best that I should undertake the negotiations, being upon friendly footing with both parties. We soon agreed that the Pullman Company should absorb our company, the Central Transportation Company, and by this means Mr. Pullman, instead of being confined to the West, obtained control of the rights on the Great Pennsylvania Trunk Line to the Atlantic Seaboard. This placed his company beyond all possible rivals. Mr. Pullman was one of the ablest men of affairs I have ever known, and I am indebted to him, among other things, for one story which carried a moral. Mr. Pullman, like every other man, had his difficulties and disappointments, and did not hit the mark every time. No one does. Indeed, I do not know anyone but himself who could have surmounted the difficulties surrounding the business of running sleeping cars in a satisfactory manner, and still retained some rights which the railway companies were bound to respect. Railway companies should, of course, operate their own sleeping cars. On one occasion, when we were comparing notes, he told me that he always found comfort in this story. An old man in a western county, having suffered from all the ills that flesh is heir to, and a great many more than it usually encounters, and being commiserated by his neighbors, replied, Yes, my friends, all that you say is true. I have had a long, long life full of troubles, but there is one curious fact about them, nine-tenths of them never happened. True indeed, most of the troubles of humanity are imaginary, and should be laughed out of court. It is folly to cross a bridge until you come to it, or to bid the devil good morning until you meet him. Perfect folly. All is well until the stroke falls, and even then, nine times out of ten, it is not so bad as anticipated. A wise man is the confirmed optimist. Success in these various negotiations had brought me into some notice in New York, and my next large operation was in connection with the Union Pacific Railway in 1871. One of its directors came to me, saying that they must raise in some way a sum of $600,000, equal to many millions today, to carry them through a crisis, 
and some friends who knew me and were on the executive committee of that road had suggested that I might be able to obtain the money, and at the same time get for the Pennsylvania Railroad Company virtual control of that important western line. I believe Mr. Pullman came with the director, or perhaps it was Mr. Pullman himself who first came to me on the subject. I took up the matter, and it occurred to me that if the directors of the Union Pacific Railway would be willing to elect to its board of directors a few such men as the Pennsylvania Railroad would nominate, the traffic to be thus obtained for the Pennsylvania would justify that company in helping the Union Pacific. I went to Philadelphia and laid the subject before President Thompson. I suggested that if the Pennsylvania Railroad Company would trust me with securities upon which the Union Pacific would borrow money in New York, we could control the Union Pacific in the interests of the Pennsylvania. Among many marks of Mr. Thompson's confidence, this was up to that time the greatest. He was much more conservative when handling the money of the Railroad Company than his own, but the prize offered was too great to be missed. Even if the $600,000 had been lost, it would not have been a losing investment for his company, and there was little danger of this, because we were ready to hand over to him the securities which we obtained in return for the loan to the Union Pacific. My interview with Mr. Thompson took place at his house in Philadelphia, and as I rose to go, he laid his hand upon my shoulder, saying, "'Remember, Andy, I look to you in this matter.' it is you i trust and i depend upon your holding all the securities you obtain and seeing that the pennsylvania railroad is never in a position where it can lose a dollar i accepted the responsibility and the result was a triumphant success the union pacific company was exceedingly anxious that mr thompson himself should take the presidency but this he said was out of the question he nominated mr thomas a scott vice president of the pennsylvania railroad for the position mr scott mr pullman and myself were accordingly elected directors of the union pacific railway company in eighteen seventy one the securities obtained for the loan consisted of three millions of the shares of the union pacific which were locked in my safe with the option of taking them at a price as was to be expected, the accession of the Pennsylvania Railroad Party rendered the stock of the Union Pacific infinitely more valuable. The shares advanced enormously. At this time, I undertook to negotiate bonds in London for a bridge to cross the Missouri at Omaha, and while I was absent upon this business, Mr. Scott decided to sell our Union Pacific shares. I had left instructions with my secretary that Mr. Scott, as one of the partners in the venture, should have access to the vault, as it might be necessary in my absence that the security should be within reach of someone. But the idea that these should be sold, or that our party should lose the splendid position we had acquired in connection with the Union Pacific, never entered my brain. I returned to find that, instead of being a trusted colleague of the Union Pacific directors, I was regarded as having used them for speculative purposes. No quartet of men ever had a finer opportunity for identifying themselves with a great work than we had, and never was an opportunity more recklessly thrown away. Mr. Pullman was ignorant of the matter, and as indignant as myself, and I believe that he at once reinvested his profits in the shares of the Union Pacific. I felt that much as I wished to do this, and to repudiate what had been done, it would be unbecoming and perhaps ungrateful in me to separate myself so distinctly from my first of friends, Mr. Scott. At the first opportunity, we were ignominiously but deservedly expelled from the Union Pacific Board. It was a bitter dose for a young man to swallow, and the transaction marked my first serious difference with a man who, up to that time, had the greatest influence with me, the kind and affectionate employer of my boyhood, Thomas A. Scott. Mr. Thompson regretted the matter, but, as he said, having paid no attention to it, and having left the whole control of it in the hands of Mr. Scott and myself, he presumed that I had thought best to sell out. For a time I feared I had lost a valued friend in Levy P. Morton, of Morton Bliss & Company, who was interested in Union Pacific. But at last he found out that I was innocent. 
The negotiations concerning two and a half millions of bonds for the construction of the Omaha Bridge were successful, and as these bonds had been purchased by persons connected with the Union Pacific before I had anything to do with the company, it was for them, and not for the Union Pacific Company, that the negotiations were conducted. This was not explained to me by the director, who talked with me before I left for London. Unfortunately, when I returned to New York, I found that the entire proceeds of the bonds, including my profit, had been appropriated by the parties to pay their own debts, and I was thus beaten out of a handsome sum, and had to credit to profit and loss my expenses and time. I had never before been cheated, and found it out so positively and so clearly. I saw that I was still young, and had a good deal to learn. Many men can be trusted, but a few need watching. End of chapter 11 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 12 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 12 Business Negotiations. Complete success attended a negotiation which I conducted about this time for Colonel William Phillips, president of the Allegheny Valley Railway at Pittsburgh. One day the colonel entered my New York office and told me that he needed money badly, but that he could get no house in America to entertain the idea of purchasing five millions of bonds of his company, although they were to be guaranteed by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. The old gentleman felt sure that he was being driven from pillar to post by the bankers because they had agreed among themselves to purchase the bonds only upon their own terms. He asked ninety cents on the dollar for them, but this the bankers considered preposterously high. Those were the days when Western Railway bonds were often sold to the bankers at eighty cents on the dollar. Colonel Phillips said he had come to see whether I could not suggest some way out of his difficulty. He had pressing need for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and this Mr. Thompson of the Pennsylvania Railroad could not give him. The Allegheny bonds were seven per cents, but they were payable, not in gold, but in currency, in America. They were therefore wholly unsuited for the foreign market. But I knew that the Pennsylvania Railroad Company had a large amount of Philadelphia and Erie Railroad six per cent gold bonds in its treasury. It would be a most desirable exchange on its part, I thought, to give these bonds for the seven per cent Allegheny bonds which bore its guarantee. I telegraphed Mr. Thompson, asking if the Pennsylvania Railroad Company would take $250,000 at interest and lend it to the Allegheny Railway Company. Mr. Thompson replied, certainly. Colonel Phillips was happy. He agreed, in consideration of my services, to give me a 60 days option to take his five millions of bonds at the desired 90 cents on the dollar. I laid the matter before Mr. Thompson, and suggested an exchange, which that company was only too glad to make, as it saved one percent interest on the bonds. I sailed at once for London with the control of five millions of first mortgage Philadelphia and Erie bonds, guaranteed by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, a magnificent security for which I wanted a high price. And here comes, in one of the greatest of the hits and misses of my financial life. I wrote the bearings from Queenstown that I had for sale a security which even their house might unhesitatingly consider. On my arrival in London, I found at the hotel a note from them requesting me to call. I did so the next morning, and before I had left their banking house, I had closed an agreement by which they were to bring out this loan, and that until they sold the bonds at par, less their two and a half percent commission, they would advance the Pennsylvania Railroad Company four millions of dollars at five percent interest. The sale left me a clear profit of more than half a million dollars. The papers were ordered to be drawn up, but as I was leaving, Mr. Russell Sturgis said they had just heard that Mr. Baring himself was coming up to town in the morning. They had arranged to hold a court, and as it would be fitting to lay the transaction before him as a matter of courtesy, they would postpone the signing of the papers until the morrow. 
if I would call at two o'clock, the transaction would be closed. Never shall I forget the oppressed feeling which overcame me as I stepped out and proceeded to the telegraph office to wire President Thompson. Something told me that I ought not to do so. I would wait till tomorrow when I had the contract in my pocket. I walked from the banking house to the Langham Hotel four long miles. When I reached there, I found a messenger waiting breathless to hand me a sealed note from the bearings. Bismarck had locked up a hundred millions in Magdeburg. The financial world was panic-stricken, and the Barings begged to say that under the circumstances they could not propose to Mr. Baring to go on with the matter. There was as much chance that I should be struck by lightning on my way home as that an arrangement agreed to by the Barings should be broken, and yet it was. It was too great a blow to produce anything like irritation or indignation. I was meek enough to be quite resigned, and 